Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. Hell yes. I think we're finally finding the crossover point of the true crime podcast and the Shakespeare podcast niche. I feel like this yes. is going to be the episode that like launches us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we're about to go from however many subscribers we have to three million subscribers <laughs> overnight yes finally cashing yeah. in <laughs> all the white women who love true crime <laughs> well we'll see i feel like often the the impact after i talk to people is like oh well thank you for ruining my enjoyment of this <laughs> <laughs> so it can really go either way okay okay, okay. all right cool <laughs> Welcome to the Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet. And Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week it's Arden of Faversham 201. And we're joined today by guest expert Sheila Corsi. Hello, Hello. Sheila. Hello. I'm so excited to be here. We're excited so to have excited you. To have you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. So I'm an assistant professor of English at St. Louis University. So um, I teach in a variety of fields and I also run a digital media lab within the English department, but my specialty is on late medieval and early modern theater and narratives of crime. Um, so this is where our Faversham come in. I often look at these narratives of crime and theater in conversation with 21st century true crime media landscapes. It's exciting. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Can't wait. Um, but first, we are going to take a teeny tiny dip into happy hour. That is a, it's a feature we do. It's a cocktail of stuff that makes us happy in the dumpster fire of life. Whew. Things that make us happy are things like inclusivity yeah, and decolonization, anti-racist pedagogy, and sometimes puppies and kitties and like oh my god there was a dog in my uh office today sorry his name was Fozzie Bear and he was black and he was fluffy because of course I teach at a Catholic university and it was the like blessing of the animals day so there were a lot of animals on campus but I got to hang out with a dog named Fozzie Bear and he was black and he was fluffy and we were in love did he tell you bad jokes too no, he told Bummer. me everything perfect because he's a perfect boy who's never done anything wrong in his entire life. You know, I also work at a Catholic university and there was nary an animal on campus today. So I have to write an email to the administrator. <laughs> clearly, this is, this is an institutional oversight. Yeah, I just clearly. Say, I, mean, I mean, maybe it's because my university is specifically Franciscan. Oh, that's true. But I don't mm. know. That, yeah. Anyway, that there were animals today, and it made me happy. That's fun. About it. <laughs> yeah, and then there were because there was there were sorry uh, we're bird walking. It's but okay. there were signs <laughs> posted on either end of the hallway that the office was in that said, "There's a friendly saucy bear in this hallway, so don't be scared if he comes to say hi to you. It's okay to say hi to him." And I was just like, "I need it. I need it. I need it." <laughs> But I had to Aww. teach, so I couldn't just, like, go hang out with the dog all day, which is, like, rude. I'm like, how dare I have students that get in the way of me following my bliss and hanging out with a dog? Rude, frankly. How dare all of my students get Fs for today. 
because they're not fuzzy bear. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear, that's what we call hyperbole mm. and hilarious joking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of anyway. stuff that's not <laughs> terrible, yeah. Um, so for this happy hour, I'm just going to point people to a couple of Instagram accounts that have been pretty awesome for me lately. Um, the first one is at not quite Beyonce. That's um, Savala Trepshinsky's Instagram. She is all about. She's putting out a book, but she's all about like intuitive eating and anti diet everything and she's great um and she's a just a fantastic woman of color very like intersectional in that and i love her and her activism and then also i've been following anti-racist education now um they put out really cool stuff so good yeah just about how like the one today was like all education is political which is like a basic thing that like i apply to theater and i apply you know um but like basically either you're upholding the system or you're questioning the system like one or the other right your, your pedagogy is one way or the other. So like sometimes it's really, really basic fundamental stuff like that. And other times it is really, really eye-opening. Um, so that's been a great Instagram account to follow. So follow those. what you got, Jess? Love that. Um, okay. So I want to point you to a series of educational resources. A person on the Twitter who is far as I know, I have never actually met in person, um, Vim, Vim PhD is uh, her, her name and her handle is exhaust underscore fumes. We're going to put up a link to the, the actual thread. She has, she's written a bunch of lectures over the past several years um, on a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of canonical British literature, that kind of thing. Um, and she's made them available for everyone to use just out in the world, whatever. She put them on her um, Medium site and they, they're they all aimed at undergrads. Um, they're mostly rooted in close reading. They all talk about uh, early modern texts in conjunction with like modern cultural goings-ons and they're fantastic. So she's got one on um, merchant and race, risk, and white capitalism. Um, another one on measure for measure and me too the slash the uh, hashtag me too movement sorry not just like and also me as well she did not write a lecture about measure for measure and just hamlet that would be weird <laughs> um there's one on rhyme of the ancient mariner it's there's just there's a lot there's canterbury tales go look enjoy read cite um further knowledge it's fantastic i have i've already gone and uh reviewed most of these and seen if there are things that i can pull out and work into my own lectures with proper citational practice because a thing that we do not do is steal the work of women of color and not give them credit for it that is not a thing we do even in our own classrooms in front of 15 white kids who would never know the difference we model good citational hygiene that's my rec sheila what do you got So I have um, a a podcast recommendation, actually. I've been listening to furiously over the last couple of weeks, and it's called Maintenance Phase. Mm. Um, So it is hosted by um, Michael Hobbs, who is probably uh, also known as the the co-host of the podcast You're Wrong About, Mm -hmm. as well as Aubrey Gordon, another great Aubrey. Um, (laughs) And uh, so this podcast takes a look at kind of health scams and the wellness industry. And for those who have listened to You're Wrong About the podcast before, it does take quite a similar framework in that it is 
is um, kind of deconstructing um, either objects, uh, products, categories, cultural moments, but with a particular focus on kind of falsities within the wellness industry, wellness scams, um, and the ways in which that often becomes a kind of intersectional focus on the ways in which wellness is driven right by capitalism, right by often colonialism. They do um, really, really lovely kind of deep dives into some of the colonialist roots of, for example, the, the protein craze um, yeah. in America, um, the kind of valorization of protein in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, and the ways in which uh, that actually, the early history of that comes from particularly British and American colonialism um, and intervention in the diet of quote unquote third world countries. Mm -hmm. So it is, it is both as somebody who's really interested in those topics, the content of those topics, it's a fascinating podcast, but also their research methodology um, is just really, really wonderful and refreshing to see. Speaking of good citational hygiene, the ways in which they kind of uh, tease out their research project uh, process and are so transparent um, about kind of the passages through which their research takes. Um, it's something that I recommend a lot to my medical humanities students. I, I teach a class on medical humanities and a lot of it is thinking about, okay, when you're looking at this medical issue, right, you need to be um, reading around the issue. Um, and I'm kind of uh, uh, side quoting uh, Tressie McMillan Cotton here of kind of sleeping around um, a topic before you go deep, right? Um, you have to understand, <laughs> right, the, the cultural constructiveness of your topic rather than just using a single keyword and drilling deep. So uh, it's been it's been both a blast and incredibly educational to listen to. Yeah, I love that podcast. I think this is the second time it's been shouted out during our happy hour because I too, oh, wonderful. like a few months ago, was like, oh my God, this podcast, because it is exhaustively researched and so, so mm -hmm. good. So good. Everybody should be listening to it. Just everybody. Fantastic. Oh, so that concludes our happy hour. Uh, okay. So this is a 201 level episode in which we operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with the play in question. So we are not going to do a synopsis of that play. But if you somehow arrived here by accident or if you're brand new to <laughs> us and you don't know what we're talking about when we say Arden of Faversham, we do have a 101 episode that you can go and listen to and it will give you everything you need to know to understand the basics of Arden of Faversham. If I recall, I think it's a pretty good episode. Yeah, damn right it is. It's a good play. Nerdy about like <laughs> the best line ever written in the entire canon of early modern drama. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a delightful episode. Yeah, I, do say I particularly so enjoyed the fuck Mary kill section. That was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot we did that. Oh, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so for two hundred ones, we go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. Today, uh, Sheila's here to talk with us about true crime, white female defendants, and Arden of Faversham. Uh, why don't you take us away, Sheila? Yeah. Lay some hot knowledge on us. Wonderful. So I'm going to talk a little bit, um, and, and there's been a, a ton of amazing scholarship on a lot of the aspects of Arden of Faversham that make it true crime, right? So thinking about um, the history of domesticity, thinking about gender relations in um, early modern uh, uh, London, particularly the suburbs of London, um, in thinking about the kind of history of female murderesses in early modern London. 
So uh, I'm going to specifically think about the ways in which Ardna Faversham speaks to contemporary true crime and the ways in which that conversation teases out um, some of um, the kind of structural innovations this play was making as one of the first of a kind of boom of domestic tragedy plays in early modern London. Um, some of the moves that it's making that we can recognize today as we kind of witness different uh, true crime, I, I, wanna, I don't want to say booms and busts, but kind of different methodologies or different frameworks works of true crime becoming popular over the course of the 20th and 21st century. Um, so I actually wanted to begin with the epilogue of the play and uh, kind of Franklin's, I have this in the notes, but one of my kind of uh, overarching uh, um, comparison that I often make in this play is Franklin as kind of the Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone of this play, of somebody who is both um, kind of imbricated within it, but also, I'm going to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who's both kind of imbricated within a kind of like the uh, the MC of the show who is kind of walking us through the framework of, of this play, but also oh. a representation of kind of... Uh, of authority, right? Um, of okay. both the author as somebody who kind of wrote and, and kind of produced, sometimes directed some of these episodes, um, but also somebody who was kind of on screen and whose main job, if you've ever seen an episode of The Twilight Zone, he's the guy in the suit at the end. Um, it both mm. introduces the episode that says, welcome to The Twilight Zone at the end to be like, wasn't that fucked up? Welcome to The Twilight Zone, <laughs> right? So somebody who both gets to experience the show alongside the audience and is implicated in the play, but also um, is is often kind of one of the creative uh, pens right behind the show. So Franklin um, kind of takes a weird turn in this play as the as the epilogue speaker, which isn't totally unusual to have a character from the play come out and kind of have more of a meta theatrical conversation with the audience. Uh, but what he does, and this is you know in the in the final in the final moment of the play, is to come out and basically talk a little bit about like a truth claim around the play that he says right here. You've seen the truth of Arden's death. He kind of gives a synopsis of all of the people all of the ends met that we haven't seen specifically, right? Um, so what happened to Blackwell and Shakebag, your favorite characters, but also, <laughs> you know, um, some of the uncertainty surrounding the play, right? The, the weird um, hageography of Arden's body kind of uh, keeping a, a print in the grass. Um, Can I interrupt and ask you to define hageography for our listeners? So oh, yes. You asked. <laughs> of course. So, hagiography hey, 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 or hagiography, hey, I think I, you can pronounce it both ways. Hagiography. Um, hey, it's hey, geography. Uh, so, hagiography <laughs> is a description of the lives of saints. So, when you talk about somebody creating like a hagiography of somebody else, right, it is uh, telling their life as if their life is, is ends with some sort of canonization. And often, part of hagiography, right, is talking about the kind of miracles that happened um, or the kind of afterlives, right, of this person's death that made them qualify, uh, qualify, right, for sainthood. And one of those, one of the biggest ones, right, is your body leaving some sort of material print in the place where you died. So either, you know, like a spring welled up, right, um, there's some sort of healing properties of the place uh, where that person died, or there is, yeah, there's some sort of material print of the body. So here we have a weird, I mean, no one's arguing that Arden was a saint, <laughs> um, uh, but there is this yeah. kind of weird local afterlife, right, a marking of the spot that kind of yeah. commemorates his murder uh, but it is on land right that he stole um so right. it is both kind of commemorating him as a dick um but also making sure that his death kind of reverberates or resonates right in the community so franklin right gives this kind of very short epilogue where he's talking about you know this is the truth of arden's death he kind of gives us a rundown of things we didn't see a kind of um you know uh, scrolling credits here's what happened to the people in the 
movie afterwards. And then has this kind of final moment where he says, gentlemen, I hope you'll pardon this naked tragedy where no filed points are foisted in to make it gracious to the ear or eye. So the, the, the standard kind of, um, you know, please excuse this play, it is imperfect. But instead of kind of claiming it's imperfection or claiming a sort of rhetorical humility, he's instead saying, right, this is not a spectacular play, right? This is not an epic play. This is a play that simply gives um, kind of the truth of one non-aristocratic man's death. Um, and what's weird about this epilogue is that in the moment where Franklin is saying, right, we are just a simple true crime plot. We're just telling you how, how it is, right? Franklin is a fictional construction, right, created by the play. He has no historical equivalent, and they have to do quite a bit of massaging of uh, Hollinshed's original narrative in order to fit Franklin in or justify why Franklin is there. So Franklin makes many parts, uh, creates many plot divergences, actually, from Hollinshed, if we're taking Hollinshed as um, one of the main historical bases of this play. But Franklin also, right, he, he serves as um, a kind of interlocutor for Arden specifically, right? For Arden to tell people, uh, say things to. He also is the mechanism through which Alice and her husband are never alone on stage. So he he intervenes quite a bit <laughs> in the play. And so to have him write a fictional character come in at the end and say, you know, here's the true story, folks, right? That's all. Welcome to the Twilight Zone um, is a really interesting move that really obscures the fact, right, that he is the closest we get to a representation of the author in the play. I'm obsessed. I'm immediately obsessed. And I will tell you why. And that is because I've only seen this play once. I've read it a, a handful of times, um, but I've only seen it once. And I don't know if I ever noticed that Alice and Arden are never on stage alone. They're never on. I mean, and I think that that's something sometimes uh, performances allow for kind of interstitial moments for them to be alone. But in the text, they never share a conversation alone on stage. And that's like a huge part of Alice's uh, kind of uh, justifications, right, for murdering him. Right. She tells, uh, she tells Green, I believe, um, you know, when when we are alone, right, he abuses me, and that's often held up as an example of her, right, being kind of mendacious, right, her being manipulative. Um, we never see kind of uh, representation of that relationship on stage, but we also never see them alone. <laughs> And so we are constantly kind of being mediated by either Franklin or another third person, right, in their relationship. Yeah, no, I never clocked that. That's wow. fascinating. That's fascinating. Do we, let's just put our early modern hive mind to the, to the test right now. Are there any other romantic couples that we can think of where that's a case, where they're never on stage alone together? Like, that's not a thing that happens, right? Like, husbands yeah. and wives have scenes with just them. Right. And I think, I mean, and there's been so much done. Um, so like Francis Dolan and uh, Lena Cohen Orland have done amazing work on kind of privacy in this play, right? And domesticity and privacy and the idea of this play as a kind of uh, breaking of the fourth wall into somebody's private house. But yeah, but, but we never see that privacy with just us, right? <laughs> it mm. is always the privacy that is already being infringed upon by others. What I think, about... I don't think Hermione and Leontes are ever on stage alone. There's always right. people. Oh. Ooh, yeah. yeah. And I was just going to say uh, Coriolanus and whatever his wife's name is. Virgilia. The only woman in that play that I can They all have V names. That. It's very confusing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But Valeria also and Virgilia what? and some other. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They're not I mean, alone together either. Yeah. You. Okay. So maybe this is actually hmm. a thing that happens, but it's, a, but it's an interesting thing that happens, right? Because we're obviously interested that Leontes and Hermione aren't ever alone on stage together. Right. And we're obviously interested that 
Coriolanus and what's her ass I've literally already forgotten her name again <laughs> aren't alone together it tells you what an important character she is and also right those are two examples of a marriage being like subsumed by state concerns right mm. that it is yeah. like their their marriage is uh playing second fiddle right to these state concerns um right. especially around potentially you know a lot of treasons things <laughs> from different yeah. parties in different locations but yeah, yeah. with art of you don't get the the idea of this marriage is public because they are public figures it's right. their marriage is public for a lot of other reasons <laughs> in this play right yeah, yeah they don't, they're not as high status um, like i wonder if we sat down and did an audit of like history plays how often that would happen because mm. of those concerns of state right that we're talking about anyway that's a really interesting rabbit hole that i totally want to dive down but i'm not going to let's redirect <laughs> yeah. sheila what else do you got to tell us so i first started teaching this play in 2016 um in uh, the second iteration of a course i talked uh, taught a couple of times at university of michigan and have kind of transferred to my current position at st louis university and in 2016 the documentary um about um amanda knox had just come out on netflix and one of the reasons I chose that uh, documentary was because it was a documentary that Amanda Knox herself had kind of co-authored and participated in. And it seemed like, especially in the ways in which I often study true crime and kind of consent um, around celebrity and media, it seemed particularly important to think about um, in looking at, right, Arden of Faversham, a play that is, uh, you know, so mediated, right, and has so many different levels of, of focus um, to go there. Yeah, Aubrey. Um, I, for those of us me who have lived <laughs> under a rock and the name amanda knox is not ringing a bell at all who that who is that i'm sorry <laughs> yeah so i'm gonna run you through a quick timeline right on. of of, of <laughs> this you. case so uh let me just pull up I, I, made my, I made a timeline i'm gonna remember i'm gonna remember like i i know all of this more or less by heart uh from, from no but it'll lessons, probably but start ringing bells through. for me too i'm just like yeah it will for you remember. for sure. Our younger listeners probably this is way before they're yes. Okay. This is this is a very elder millennial uh, case that also <laughs> actually <honored>. coincided. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So one thing that's often not noticed about this case is it also coincided with the um, uh, uh, the public uh, invention and spread of Twitter. Um, so this, uh, the murder of Meredith Kircher, which is going to be the kind of murder that set off this case, happened in 2007, the same year that Twitter went public. And um, so one of the things that we often talk about is kind of why true crime stories go viral, why some and not others, and there's so many factors to be put in. But in this case, it's often, it's also right that this was happening coterminously with um, a kind of international social media platform, right, that allowed that kind of discussion and debate. Um, so in 2007, um, Meredith Kircher, who was a, a British study abroad student who was living in Perugia, Italy, um, was found murdered in the apartment which she shared, which she shared with a, another um, exchange student who's American, whose name is Amanda Knox. And so in the kind of early days of this case, um, Amanda Knox and her boyfriend, uh, who she had just started dating, Rafael Solicito, who is Italian, are, are both go in for questioning. Um, and there's a lot of um, kind of different narratives around what happened then. Amanda Knox has 
talk extensively about um, kind of being questioned in a very aggressive, sometimes violent um, way, kind of being withheld from resources that she needed. And we'll talk about some of the kind of uh, details of, of, of this case in more granular detail. Uh, but she first uh, falsely accuses her boss, um, a man who kind of owned a bar who she worked for named Patrick Lumumba. It was quite quickly established that he had nothing to do with the case, that he was totally innocent. And eventually, um, Amanda Knox and, and Rafael Solicito were uh, tried for murder as well as uh, burglary, attempt to cover up a crime. Um, and so they were first uh, found guilty in 2009 and sentenced respectively uh, to 25 and 26 years for murder and uh, some assortments of other crimes. Um, and then that was turned over in 2011. Um, and so um, Amanda Knox was allowed to go home back to the United States. They were then found guilty again in 2014. Um, so by the Italian Supreme Court, they were released under the appellate court. The Supreme Court um, found them guilty again. And then in 2015, there was a kind of uh, re-examination of some of the forensic evidence in the case. And it turns out there was possible sources of cross-contamination. Um, there was a lot of possible misconduct. And so they were both acquitted permanently by the Italian Supreme Court. Um, so by 2015, um, Amanda Knox had already kind of been in America. She did not return for the 2014 trial. But it was, right, this kind of really multi-year um, kind of epic saga, as you can imagine, that remained in the media for, for quite a lot of time. And so one of the reasons that I taught this documentary, the Netflix documentary, um, with uh, Ardena Faversham is because Amanda Knox, um, as a kind of potential um, or real kind of defendant, though she was, of course, acquitted, really becomes cast as a kind of Alice Arden figure. So both of them are fashioned as kind of the true crime offshoot of the femme fatale, um, which I know you guys talked about in the in the um, in the 101 episode, that that both of them were were framed through kind of classic femme fatale fashion, right, as these very sexy women, women with um, kind of uh, a, a kind of unmoral sexual agency, right, that are both going to be historically constructed differently in 2007, right, versus in uh, the 1580s, 1590s. But right, both of them are kind of have sexual agency that is framed as kind of unmoral, right? Uh, they are very good at lying and manipulating, right? They are particularly kind of mendacious um, or able to manipulate those around them. And right, they have all of these layers, right, of, of um, kind of rhetorical complexity, of identity, right? There is this idea that they are hiding their authentic self. Um, and so one of the things we often talk about in this course, right, is the the way in which that construction, right, this idea of the femme fatale, which obviously kind of isn't, isn't from the genre of true crime, but travels into the idea of true crime, is also a way to both justify and encourage, right, the kind of um, close reading, right, or forensic attention that you see in the media reporting, right, uh, at the aftermath of both crimes, um, but also in kind of the true crime uh, reprisals, right, or, or um, returns to this kind of narrative that the femme fatale figure that that kind of becomes the female defendant is um, so kind of prevaricating, right, or is so complex, right, that she not only um, requires but justifies, right, kind of constant iterations of a kind of forensic scrutiny, um, that it is an invitation to constantly read for quote unquote authenticity. Um, and so it, it is that section of my class where we talk about close reading, where we talk about kind of what makes the rich text for close reading, um, the what invites close reading, right? The ways in which we think about, um, you know, what close reading allows us to do, but also the ways in which, obviously, you know, in the Amanda uh, in the Amanda Knox Netflix documentary, they um, are 
or Amanda herself, right, is somewhat pushing back against this and saying, actually, you know, I am not that complex, right? I am a, a very shallow text <laughs> in that sense, right? But I am going to kind of speak directly to the audience and try to unpack, right, some of the media narratives that emerge, particularly the really misogynistic ones, right, uh, that framed her as a kind of femme fatale or angel of death. Can they we were talk awful. about her freaking nickname, Foxy Noxy? Yeah. Ooh. Not and you, People Magazine. Yikes. Yeah. So there was, uh, I mean, especially in kind of magazines like People Magazine in the British press as well. So this was also, right, obviously an international true crime story um, in which you had a kind of triangulation between the American, British, and Italian media because Meredith Kircher was a British citizen, right, of the murder took place in Italy, Amanda Knox is American. So you have this kind of international theater of true crime in which you have also kind of particular audience groups, right, or uh, discourse communities, right, who are going to uh, orient themselves very differently to this crime. So yeah, so the media coverage, I mean, it was, it was horrific. And, the, you know, the Netflix documentary looks a lot at this, particularly at the Daily Mail, um, which was probably one of the most egregious examples, unsurprisingly. Yeah, <laughs> um, trash, just uh, but, garbage. Yeah, it, so a lot of what we talk about in this class is kind of the ways in which these concepts haven't necessarily changed. They're obviously packaged in different terms sometimes, but a lot of the focus on Alice Arden and her portrayal in this play, right, is, is kind of like if if you took only the media representation of Amanda Knox right, and then wrote a play about it, wrote a film about it, um, this kind of incredibly engaging, right, and incredibly interesting con woman um, who is constantly kind of shuffling between, right, these different kind of masks or um, um, uh, different moments of dissembling. That is both kind of, as I said, right, deeply engaging, deeply fascinating, but also invites both um, kind of of her time this kind of moralistic critique, right, of, well, you know, how women are right but also you know this this idea of the female murderess right the um the adulterous wife um the kind of overly sexed woman but also as right this kind of fascinating and and you know constantly reproducing story so when we look at right alice arden as a kind of cultural figure even after the play right the play is only one kind of node in this really really long timeline of alice arden as a kind of everlasting cultural figure right she becomes um not just a kind of historical person, right, but she becomes a, a kind of cultural object through which, right, we talk about adultery, right, through which we talk about gender roles well into the 17th century. Um, so when we look at kind of like Thomas Taylor in A Theater of God's Judgments, um, Henry Goodcole, uh, right, in The Adulteress's Funeral Day, great title, um, you know, talks since <laughs> 1635, so, you know, decades after the play, right, he says, I will only remember you of Mistress Arden, who caused her husband to be murdered in her own house at Faversham and Kent, the circumstances there of deserving places um, in a most approved chronicle, he's talking about Hollandshed here, right, uh, may very well be spared in this short discourse. So we constantly get kind of moments like that in text where someone is saying like, I don't need to tell you about this case. Um, and I often kind of look at those moments in, in, in a number of true crime narratives of, well, these, these stories had a, an incredibly long half-life um, in cultural memory. Um, it, even if the, it became a kind of game of narrative telephone, um, they did have extraordinary staying power in, in kind of different forms of print, right, of oral communication, right, or of performance. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm trying to, yeah, okay, so 1551, Thomas Arden is murdered. Yes. So we're already, at, and then the play is written in like 1588, and there's the Holland Shed, which comes out, you know, a couple years before then, and they're 
at least I think two different ballads or broadsides about the murder and then we've it's going it, it keeps going up it keeps going the yeah 17th century that's I mean, it's wild. But I mean, it's not, especially when we consider what we do, and this is part of what I talk about in this class, right? Considering what we do with kind of our own really, what we might think of right now as kind of constantly repetitive true crime stories, you know, like O.J. Simpson, right? Um, that stays alive in cultural discourse, right? Because you have, right, the the Netflix, right, adaptation of that in which they literally kind of pull an art of version, right, and say like, okay, you can watch the original video of the trial, but we're going to recast this with actors, you know, right? We're going to play it all over again, right? We're going to kind yeah. of re-perform this for you. So yeah, there right. is a kind of generational yeah. travel, right, between it, which means, right, um, we're constantly both going to offer the story to a new generation, but also, and this is a really important part of true crime, right, each of those iterative circles is also attempting to correct Right, the former, the former uh, portrayal, right, or the former reporting. So the Netflix documentary is also right. It, it is uh, watching the watchers, right? It's saying like, okay, we are also going to take as an object of study the people who reacted right in real time to this trial, mm -hmm. um, and we are going to examine their behaviors, right? We are going to frame like what they got wrong about the case, right? And we are going to correct the record. So the Netflix documentary, right, especially given that Amanda Knox, right, is helping produce it, is kind of taking a really uh, close scrutiny, right, at the people who helped construct, right, the Foxy Noxy kind of monikers, right, mm -hmm. um, who who kind of created that, that media presence. But we also see that, right, in the kind of Netflix adaptations, for example, of, of the O.J. Simpson trial, right, that we are constant, th those shows, right, or those reiterations are constantly saying, well, we're going to correct the record this time around, right, we're going to give a more nuanced look at this, we're going to complicate the things that you thought that were simple, right, and we are going to kind of restore sometimes the truth right two people perhaps who were unfairly maligned um and then in another 50 years i'm sure it will happen all over again right but right. there is there is this kind of iterative circle of true crime of you know we're going to take another pass at this right and we are going to correct what the last pass did wrong and sometimes that can do that can do some concrete social good i'm not saying that that's that's a universally bad thing but it also right um, in the same way that the femme fatale, right, the kind of Alice Arden or the Amanda Knox figure kind of invites or retroactively justifies, right, intervention or scrutiny, right, or close reading. A lot of that structure also invites the idea, right, that this is something we're going to keep, we're going to keep returning to, right, that we are, it is, it is a continually iterative structure, right, that we're, if we just return to it one more time, right, this time we'll get the final version, right, we'll get the, the version that seems the most narratively satisfying and will answer all of the gaps right that are bothering right the corners of our minds mm -hmm. right. so would it would it be fair to say that uh, a perhaps particularly of the moment right now today 2021 cycle of this kind might be all of the attention on britney spears and her conservatorship yeah yeah so that's like both an example of the like the cross-section of true crime and celebrity culture obviously so mm -hmm. like thinking about the ways in which uh, looking at kind of the construction of celebrity itself, right, often crosses into the kind of subsection of true crime celebrity. But also, yes, right, the the idea of the the kind of Britney Spears conservatorship um, struggle mm -hmm. is, you know, an iteration of here's how we paid attention to Britney the wrong way before, and now we're paying attention to her in the right way, right? And that certainly comes with, you know, questions of like, yes, can this pressure do some social good for Britney Spears? This is great. You know, can it do some social good in drawing attention 
attention to lesser known um, case studies, right, of bad conservatorship, right, or the practice when where it can go awry in policy, right, that's a very concrete social good. But with that, and this is also another thing of true crime, it's also the question of like, well, who gets that kind of attention? And this is where we arrive <laughs> at the white women of it all in thinking about, you know, especially when it comes to um, Amanda Knox's case, right? When we ask questions about why did a particular crime, right, go viral? Why did it seize national attention, international attention? Um, and I, as I said before, right, there are a number of factors, right? So we're looking at kind of Twitter kind of becoming established at the same time, right? We're looking at there's a particular international situation, right, around um, the Iraq war, right? And the relationship between, um, right, England, Italy, and America at the time, um, and some of the international politics that gets mapped onto that case. But there's also, of course, and this is something that has been much more talked about in recent years, um, this kind of gravitational pull, right, towards particularly young, white, attractive female, either victims or defendants, right, as kind of catnip for true crime narratives. When it when we consider um, kind of who becomes um, who becomes a true crime story, right, or kind of who who gets that sort of attention, there is often a lot of dynamics of race, of gender, of class, right, that are coming into play. Yeah, I mean, you you were well. While well, Jess, you were coming up with the Britney Spears example, my brain went to two <laughs> other examples, and they're both white women. I was thinking of um, I Tanya, the movie I Tanya about the yeah, yeah uh, about the Nancy She's Kerrigan and it, yeah, and uh, about that scandal. And then I was thinking mm -hmm. about the Monica Lewinsky thing. The mm -hmm. um, is it Hulu? Is it Netflix? Beanie Feldstein FX. plays Monica Lewinsky. It's, and it's, it's FX. Oh, yeah. FX. Okay, um, but it's yeah. not. It's not streaming if you don't if you don't have FX and you don't pay for. Got it. Like, yeah, I just I hadn't seen it. it. I know. Me too. I really yeah. want to see it. But like again, it's a big scandal with the president mm -hmm. of the United States, but also his <laughs> white female mm -hmm. intern. Um, mm -hmm. Well, or yeah. to or to look at a, a far more immediate example here in October of 2021. You know, the, the big true crime story is that white girl who went missing in right. Utah. Oh my God, yeah. Gabby right. something? Gabby Petito. Never, Gabby Petito, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, like, I mean, not immediately, obviously not immediately, but pretty quick thereafter, like, when it when it sort of broke and they started putting the pieces together, people were like, okay, what about the black and brown people who went missing in the same fucking desert? Are right. we going to look for them? Exactly. Right. So I think, and that, that reckoning coming so quickly, I think is actually a really, it, it's a, it's a movement forward, right? In true crime mm -hmm. of being kind of uh, self-conscious and self-critical about that initial kind of rush towards a story is I think a, a really important step forward, right? Of saying, okay, like everyone is rushing to kind of think about this case, to learn the details, right? This is becoming um, this kind of very fascinating national, national narrative. Why this one, right? Why why is it why is it this one in hundreds right of of missing persons right that are in just the last couple months right that yeah. has deserved national attention um there was one there was one report that kind of framed her as um america's daughter was the exact phrase mm -hmm. and there's that moment of like you want to balance right both uh um, yeah. you know obviously this is a tragedy for her family right so you yeah. uh, and it is something right that is it is incredibly tragic but it's also this question of like who gets to be america's daughter um right when they go missing right who who gets yeah, to be right. kind of framed that way and so i think that there is there is a lot of 
pushback that didn't used to be there or wouldn't happen as quickly, right? It would be months later mm -hmm. that someone would say like, well, actually, <laughs> why this yeah. case, right? Why did we behave that way? But I mean, so the Gabby Petito case is also um, a really good example of where sometimes the kind of crowdsourced nature of true crime sometimes goes awry, um, which I've, I've written about a little, but, but thinking about the kind of impulse towards kind of crowdsourcing knowledge, right, or using social media as a way to kind of bring together a kind of critical mass of people, right, who are applying mm -hmm. scrutiny, right, or, or skills to, to a particular case. And we've seen this happen in a lot of cases. So I wrote on it on, on, on Serial, the podcast and the Adnan Saeed case and the kind of internet detectives, right, that kind of flocked around that case. And I think it's both when we when we frame, right, that kind of attention, right, or the desire to help. I think part of that is, you know, can be a, a really altruistic impulse. And I think it's people trying to help, especially uh, with some of the kind of systemic flaws in the justice system and thinking about how can I turn my time and attention, right, to this case. Um, at its worst impulses, right, it is often you know, people treating this as a fun mystery for them to solve, right? Mm -hmm. And that often kind of tagging themselves into a case without necessarily either the best methodology or the best intentions in a way that actually can cause significant harm rather than significant good. You know, so as somebody who is very aware of some of the deep and persistent problems in our in our criminal justice system, I don't want to say that I am not in favor right, of kind of citizen activism, right, or attempts to kind of uh, bring attention attention to, right, or or kind of work to change um, some of those structural things. I think often, especially when it, when it becomes a case-by-case -case basis, the problem is that attention gets diverted from the structural and towards the lure of the single narrative, right? The lure of finding answers, not in order to right some wrong, even though that is often kind of waged as the reason, but because it becomes a kind of uh, fun semiotic puzzle. So I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to walk you away from where your field of expertise is. So feel free to redirect me if this is a question that leads you down a path of ill repute. I don't know. Um, so we've talked about the, the white women of the victim defendant of it all. What about the white women in the like the white women public who love true crime? Yes. What about that okay. phenomenon? Absolutely. Right. So um that's also something, you know, I talk about in this class of when we think about the kind of true crime boom, right? That started around 2011, 2012. Usually the time we we kind of cite making of a murderer, right, or serial as kind of one of the first texts of that boom. And we often link that right to the rise in uh true crime, especially highbrow true crime, what we would consider not necessarily the kind of dateline true crime, right, or the kind of daytime TV true crime, right, but a rise in the kind of podcast, Netflix documentary, um, the kind of true crime that is often packaged, right, as quite highbrow media, right? So media right, like that is is kind of giving more, let us say, elevated treatment, right, um, right, to, right. to these cases. Um, investigative reporting versus lifetime movie of the week. Yes, exactly. Um, and Alice Bolin actually has a really excellent article on this on highbrow true crime and the ways in which especially uh, the packaging of this right as you know a, a higher echelon of reporting a higher echelon of treatment sometimes often conceals some real problems in methodology um, and and kind of some of the same harms right that that kind of dateline work was doing it's just in often fancier terms and so 
when it comes to kind of the, the rise of especially true crime as a genre that a lot of white women are producing and consuming, there are kind of two different kind of uh, not forking paths, but parallel paths here. And one is like the, the really important and, and great pushback uh, that women made in true crime and thinking about it not as a genre, right, that often was marginalizing and objectifying victims, right, as kind of narratively uncomplicated and uninteresting subjects, right, in favor of often male defendants, right, as complicated and very narratively interesting subjects. Um, so pushing back against that impulse, right, of kind of marginalizing victims in these stories. And also thinking about how women might engage with true crime as a space to talk about, right, their own experiences, right, with domestic violence, right, with abuse, right, with um, sexism, and the ways in which this becomes becomes a particularly healing space. Like, you know, so a lot of, and a lot of people much smarter than me have written a lot about this, you know, about how um, surprisingly, right, an incredibly bloody and often violent genre um, becomes a space where women can kind of talk through, right, these narratives as a way of also creating communion, right, and talking a lot about the ways in which it speaks to kind of systemic violence against women, right, in which it speaks to um, their own history, right, and how um, they use true crime to both think about those moments, um, but also as a way of um, kind of learning more about those issues. Um, so I don't want to minimize, right, that really kind of great impulse of kind of women consuming and creating true crime. I think the other, the other and slightly more kind of problematic um, side of that is because it was the majority of that was kind of white women consuming and creating true crime, that that creates a lot of, a, it created a lot of blind spots around the ways in which we talk about those crime narratives. Um, so especially when it came to kind of the roles of police and policing in these incidents, a lot of uh, like a lack of uh, kind of critical reflection, as well as, you know, a tendency to assume, you know, a certain orientation towards the justice system. Um, so a great example of this in the Amanda Knox documentary, right, is when she's looking at the camera and talking about her experience, right, being mistreated by, you know, the people who were first uh, interviewing, right, and kind of harassing her, right, in this in this initial interview, um, her experiences with a kind of unfair justice system and an unfair media system. And her kind of opening tagline, right, was kind of, I am the wolf in sheep's clothing, or I am you. And there is a really interesting, you know, body of work that that you is doing in the kind Kind of assumed watcher, right? The, the person who is watching, right? Their relationship towards the justice system, right? The assumption, right? That a story, right? Of somebody being mistreated during interrogation or by the police force, right? Is something that would be shocking or the worst nightmare to a number of Americans rather than a kind of very grimly quotidian reality um, for a lot of Americans, particularly Americans of color. So there, I think there's a lot of blind spots, right? That that creates when you have particularly, yeah, white women um, at both consuming and creating true crime. And one of the other things, right, that this also kind of brings up in this particular case, right, is the kind of long historical recurring, not necessarily trend, but narrative, right, of white women falsely accusing Black men of crime that they did not commit. So this is another aspect of the Amanda Knox case that did not get really obviously highlighted in the Netflix documentary. Mm -hmm. But this is something, right, that has often come up and, and Amanda Knox herself, who kind of talks to um, the media and has talked a lot about her own experiences in the criminal justice system, often tries to downplay right, that she did falsely accuse her boss, Patrick Lumumba, who is a, a Black man, I believe of Congolese descent, uh, who 
is uh, living in Italy as her boss, right, who she falsely accuses of this crime. And this is, again, like intersecting with so many other issues, right, to that originally she gave a kind of false confession, right? Um, there was a lot of things going on in that interrogation room. But I think one of the uh, frustrations I have around that case and that narrative is how much this could have been a moment, right, especially since Amanda Knox is quite still quite active, right, in talking about her experience and talking about the Innocence Project um, and people who are kind of falsely convicted. Um, this could have been such a great moment, right, for Knox herself to say like, okay, you know, I, you know, I was given a false confession, right, I was kind of being pressured a lot, um, you know, ultimately there are a lot of psychological factors going on, but what I did is also not just a kind of freak accident, right, this is part of a longer historical trend, particularly in America, right, uh, and when we think about, you know, other, other kind of falsely accused people, right, um, a, a lot of the time, right, that that comes into play, right, the kind of false accusations, particularly from white women against uh, men of color, and so a lot of this treatment, right, or especially the consideration of race in these true crime stories, um, or the consideration of the relationships that people have with the police, the trust they have in the police, right? Um, this idea of uh, police misconduct as uh, as a kind of uh, horrifying one-off, right, rather than, you know, a structural reality in America, right? A lot of that also feeds into, right, the, these true crime, these true crime, you know, this true crime media. And so there has been, you know, a lot of um, kind of very needed reflection, right, or pushback against that media and saying, okay, you guys need to think about, right, you know, an intersection of, for example, gender and race here, because there are massive blind spots. Yeah. Yeah, you were right. You did ruin the true crime genre for me. Thanks. <laughs> no, but, but I mean, like, the thing is, like, we can get better. I mean, like, there is, I think, a, a like, the, the best, uh, the best version of true crime, right, is one that could kind of make significant changes in drawing public attention to structural problems, right? So not just kind of dangling the, the narrative mystery of one particular case, but leveraging that mystery to also get its audience to care, right? Not just about kind of who done it in this mm. case, right? But to draw attention to the less sexy structural issues, right? That isn't something that you can debate about on Reddit, right? Or kind of uh, draw together, right? Different timelines or kind of uh, a data crawl, right? Through the internet. Uh, but it is something that, right? That you can marshal, um, kind of marshal support behind, right? Or gather around. So, so I mean, like, I think there is a better future for the genre. I, I think it just has to do a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, I was never a huge true crime fan anyway, but <laughs> I mean, Plus, this I was mean, one of the really should watch the Man in Ox doc. It's it is a rich text. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, and, and I so one of the reasons I embarked on this project was because I was a fan of true crime. Right, I I really got into when Serial first came out. I remember it was it first started around the fall. Gosh, I think of either 2013 or 2012. Uh, but I remember that Thanksgiving sitting around um, with some of my family members. It was actually one of my cousins who works in theater who had heard about it from her theater friends. And she played it, right? And she was like, no, you guys need to listen to this. And I remember us sitting around at table at Thanksgiving, just like silent listening to it yeah. together and reacting and then pausing it to talk. And it was such a really interesting, um, and that was also what made me think about kind of podcasts and theater together and the particular, uh, the ways in which the podcast kind of creates that kind of interpersonal intimacy, 
um, which again, much smarter people have talked about than me have talked about in the ways in which, you know, the podcast as something that comes into your home or into your domestic spaces, right? Often while you are doing other activities creates a, a particular relationship, right? With the reader, but also, right? The kind of communities, the listener communities or the, like the audience communities that grow out of those podcasts becomes a way to create lateral relationships. But I remember, yeah, that first moment of being like, well, this is something, right? That is, has this both kind of glued, right? But also it's something that we cannot wait to discuss, right? That it is just this kind of beautiful, rich text. I've, I've realized I've said rich text about like 16,000 times during this episode, but it's right? It, it true, becomes though. this way for us to talk mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Serial was like the podcast that made podcasts, right? And we yes. all remember that. And yeah. my students don't anymore. And I, I always, we have a, a fairly um, robust criminal justice program at my institution so I get a lot of criminal justice majors in like my con class and I'm like okay you know what are you what are you interested in what do you want to write about and they're always like oh true crime and I'm like all right well how do you feel about cereal and they're like I have literally no idea what that is right because the growth has been so fast right Um, there is this kind of sense right that now that true crime has been quite its own little cottage industry right for a long time when actually right it's, it's it's only been you know almost less than 10 years that it really kind of took this new path. Um, and the relationship between true, true crime as a genre and the podcast is really fascinating and was actually, as I've said before, right, a big part of my dissertation and thinking about why domestic tragedy, right, really suddenly flourished, right, in the 1580s and 90s as a theater genre and not just, right, something passed around, right, in broadsides and pamphlets and ballads, right, but it really flourished as a theater genre. Um, and I was really interested in kind of those, those two booms, right, uh, put in conversation with each other and what in particular, right, they also allow us to think about audience engagement and response, right, the ways in which these narratives put particular kinds of pressure, right, or offer particular kinds of invitations to their audience that you don't necessarily see in other narratives. So I was first engaging with this play called Two Lamentable Tragedies that was about a murder that had occurred in London, actually, just a couple years ago. It didn't have the same uh, distance as Ardena Faversham. And so they would frequently turn to their audience and say, like, well, you guys were here, you saw this happen, right? So you are both the audience and also kind of guarantors of our truth claims. But then that audience also becomes implicated in what I've been talking about, right? The kind of second pass methodology of like, well, here's how we got it wrong the first time around, right? Here's how on the initial reporting and and gossip, we accidentally implicated some of the wrong people, right? Or, Or we made some interpretive mistakes, right? And in doing that second pass, it also implicates the audience, right? In that group who made mistakes the first time around and saying, you were part of this, right? Like you were here. You were here for this, right? So you are both making sure that we're staying honest in the way that we tell the, you know, the story of this, but we're also taking you to task for those of you who are here in that there were some mistakes made, right? And, you know, before this is also part of, you know, uh, the true crime genre's defense of itself, right? That uh, before you accuse us, right, of being kind of predatory or bloodthirsty, right? We are kind of a reflection of your own past actions and desires as well, right? That you're kind of in this boat with us quite literally <laughs> sometimes so okay so we've got Arden of Faversham we've got two lamentable tragedies we've got woman killed with kindness maybe it was kind of kind of on the on the on the edge right so there's a lot okay. of debate about like what counts um but yeah. um a warning for fair women is one of the other big ones as well as a Yorkshire tragedy um which is a shorter kind of like a playlet 
Um, yeah. Yeah, we, we read that for the 100th episode. It was wild. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was I actually assigned that episode in my, but I, I taught uh, Yorkshire Tragedy last semester in Yay. my Crime and Transgression Yay. Early Modern Theater class. I assigned that episode, Yay. I remember. Aww, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> the question really ironic because my students came back and they were like, they say fuck a lot on that podcast. <laughs> like, yeah, it's fine. Like, it's, it's supposed to be an informal discursive podcast. You're allowed to say fuck when talking about Early Modern yeah. Theater. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, so there's there's a handful of of plays that would fall into this sort of domestic tragedy genre. Yeah, women but I mean, women maybe a little bit. I mean, like that has elements of it, and like this is yeah. the thing where it's a lot of the times defining true crime as a genre is such like mm-hmm. a weird noodly process. Um, so that's actually one of the activities I often do with my students is having them think about what is the true in true crime doing, what is the crime in true crime doing, what are the boundaries of mm-hmm. both of those categories in creating the genre? Because often, you know, it's kind of like like stasis testing for a genre of like it's more I give them an example and they say yes or no is that true crime right Mm -hmm. and that's how they construct the like I don't think this is true this is definitely true crime right but Mm -hmm. this isn't true crime I can't explain quite explain why right Mm -hmm. but I I don't identify it right so it is almost a kind of like affective definition of like it's a it's a orientation of feeling towards a text right that often gives it you know places it outside or inside true crime. So one of the things we talked about was, you know, thinking about texts that look at police brutality and police killings. And one of the things I asked them is like, is this true crime? And they're like, no, because it's like activism, right? It's a kind of like, uh, you know, it's investigative reporting and it's activism. Like, okay, so like true crime can't be activism. Like, you know, how do we split hairs here? And this is also one of the problems, right? Is that true crime often gets put under the mantle of investigations into a single narrative that is framed as a fun puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or something that rather than something that has um, kind of structural implications, right? That Mm -hmm. it's, that, that there's often a a kind of expulsion, right, of of works or narratives, right, or case studies that don't spark um, that same sense of enjoyable mystery. And part of that, and I mean, like, uh, that's, that's a broad generalization, but a lot of the times when I'm talking about kind of, yeah, what are the outside boundaries of true crime, right? How do we define whether or not a text fits within true crime or some of the overlapping genres, right, within true crime? Because even though domestic tragedy, right, had some kind of clear definitions, albeit definitions we assigned retroactively, right, there is still that same kind of sometimes boundary liminality when it comes to does this count? Does this not count? Right? How do we how do we kind of define clearer boundaries? And with contemporary true crime, I think sometimes it's even harder. I mean, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm just I'm just obsessed, and I I am so excited that the world brought us together so that I could have you on this podcast to talk about Arden of Faversham and early modern true crime for our listeners. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated. I could yeah. sit here all night, but we maybe shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Sheila, is there anything else that you want to, like, hit us with before we move on? No, I think I've hit you with quite enough things at this point. <laughs> uh, um, but no, I'm, I'm happy to move on to the gossip. And also, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, this has been, yeah. of course, one of my favorite topics to talk about. And of course, I could go on for another eight bajillion hours, but that would be neither fun for you nor your audience. Yeah. I mean, so, is that a challenge? Yeah. Like, we could... <laughs> Okay, well, we have we have um, some gossip to to talk about. Um, so I just I just want to point out that uh, the Netflix documentary on Amanda Knox that we've been talking about will throw a link up to that um, in the show notes for Absolutely. y'all. I I cannot recommend it highly enough, even for people who 
weren't conscious of the the case while it was going on for people who aren't like don't identify as true crime fans it's it is just a fascinating fascinating what do you keep saying rich text um, <laughs> definitely the subtitle for this episode a rich text rich text it everywhere rich perhaps text. where they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah. it will it will give you some chills um, I also want to shout out that we have a new section on the Hurley Burley Shakespeare website. We sure do. Uh, Long overdue. We, Just it's <laughs> been about us. So uh, if you have yeah. been curious ever about who we are or what we do, or <laughs> it even only like took us five like, seasons to figure out that we should yeah, do that. It's fine. That's live now. Although I'm sorry <laughs> to say that Aubrey did not leave the bio that I wrote for her. So. I didn't. Yeah. It was a really yeah. nice one, but I wanted to keep it, it just was. for me. <laughs> yeah, I was. I was talking about how you smell nice, and you might be the most loved person in the state of Virginia. I'm yeah. just, I don't wow, know. Wow, in a state for lovers. I, yeah, that's a lot. Same. No, it was really, one. it was really nice. Um, I also wanted to quickly jump in and say yeah. I there are two um articles that I did not mention by name, but I also frequently teach with, and I um Jess, I will send you the links for those so that you can put those oh, in. Yeah. Um, but they are um both Stevie Simpkins' article on um uh, kind of celebrity studies that's called Actually Evil, Not High School Evil: Amanda Knox Sex and Celebrity Crime. Um, what and then, a great title! I know, right? <laughs> It's 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 always a big hit in my true crime class, um, yeah. but also a medium article by Flavia Z Zodin. I don't think I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Zodin, that is on Amanda Knox Netflix and the making of white innocence, um, in which she kind of dips into Gloria Wecker's work on white innocence. Um, that's also a really great read and kind of publicly available for those interested in reading more about kind of thinking about Amanda Knox and and kind of racial dynamics in true crime. Um, all right. Well, thanks so much for listening. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. We hope you leave the podcast more informed about true crime. Yeah. And Arden Faber started. And a yeah. little bit of Arden Faber. <laughs> a little bit of Arden Faber. Yeah. 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 Um, Sheila, what the hell are you working on in your life? Where where can our listeners keep up with you if they want to keep up with you? Which they obviously will want to because you're so awesome and smart and talented and pretty and they can't see that you're pretty, but like I'm saying that you're pretty, so. Okay, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, so I am currently finishing up an article draft on basically everything I've just said um, about Arden Faversham that may be in your mailbox and, you know, uh, anywhere from six months to two years. <laughs> So it's good that you're getting getting the the absolute blurted version uh, through this podcast before the polished one comes out later. Um, I've also recently written in comparative drama on um, Two Lamentable Tragedies, the domestic tragedy play that I mentioned before, and Serial, the podcast, looking a little bit at kind of uh, true crime discursive communities, particularly on Reddit, um, and, and that phenomena in conversation with media around uh, 1590s London. Um, but you can also find me on Twitter. Um, my uh, handle is S.E. Corsi, um, and also just uh, generally around St. Louis um, and on the St. Louis University page. I am also in February. Uh, no, it's not February. Gosh. Uh, when is SA in time and April. space? No, that's April. happening. April. I overshot it by two months. I am co-hosting at a seminar on on early modern theater and podcasting with Jess. Um, what? So, yes. Yes. Yeah, 
It shouldn't be a surprise to you. <laughs> We will be we will be working together with a group of really awesome people um, to yeah. uh, have a conversation about early modern theater studies and podcasting. Hell yeah! If you happen to make it to Jacksonville, y'all come. Yeah, come, to this yeah. Conversation. come hang out with us. Um, and then finally, I also I also host and uh, run a podcast through the uh, Media Lab. I talked about it, SLU, that is called Eloquentia Perfecta Ex Machina. That is all about um, kind of teaching and uh, thinking about rhetoric and composition. So Ooh. no true crime, unfortunately. But uh, mm-hmm. a lot of pedagogy. <laughs> sure. Fun. Sure. I mean, isn't pedagogy a form of true crime? <laughs> Depends on who's doing the pedagogy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Who's doing okay. the teaching? Um, well, thanks for playing with us, Sheila. This was thanks so for fun. inviting me. This is yeah. so much fun. I love right, to talk to you. We're back uh, for our next episode in two weeks because that's how this works now. We're, we're on a two week schedule. And yeah. what is it? Boy, I'll tell you. Comedy of Errors 201. Yep. It's going to be great. Yep. Whamlet awesome. out. Whamlet out. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurleyburleyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurleyburleyshake, no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record the Muskegee Creek Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Manahoac Nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Dun, dun, dun. Can we get can we get some like Law and Order music? Yeah, <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> I think that's like, trademarked, I really but I will feel... do my best and I will find something yeah, but, like, like that. It. Like in that definitely style, right? Yes. Like we need we need absolutely. some like true like a gumshoe, like yeah. absolutely, like yes. the Law and Order theme, but played on a kazoo. Procedural <laughs> yeah. music. Well, that I can do because there is always what? a kazoo. What? <laughs> <laughs> always a kazoo and a clown nose and probably juggling balls within arm's reach of me at all times amazing oh i love that it's not quite a gavel i'll make it work